Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and dazzling autopsy techs. I'm trying to find like a new adjective every week. I think we were pretty dazzling this week, so I'm saying we're dazzling autopsy techs. This episode, we're dissecting Harrow, season two, episode four, titled Agri Somnia. We'll be discussing a little marine biology and shark attacks. So let's get into it. We open on someone going for a run on the beach and they come across a boat in the sand and find a body next to it. It's always the runners. Alice, have you found a dead body yet on your runs? No, I would obviously, you'd be the first person I'd tell. (laughs) You would know if I found a body on one of my runs. Like, should I start go running outside and maybe I'll find a dead body instead of doing Pilates in my room? I haven't found any yet, (laughs) so I've been running for a while. So this body is missing its legs and one of their arms. And then we cue to the opening credits, which are super cool animations of kind of the storyline of Harrow. And I really, I really enjoy them. I, this might be my favorite opening credits. I think they have the coolest opening credits of all of the, like the CSI type shows. Whoever animated that, whatever artist it was, it was really, really cool. If you watch the show, you know what we're talking about. We then go to Harrow at home, reporting that his car has been set on fire, and in typical Inside the Morgue fashion, we're jumping right into the middle of some of the show's drama that we know nothing about. I think some serial killer... Why are serial killers always after these... <laughs> the pathologists. It's a pathologist or, the or um, Bones. There was a serial killer after her, mm-hmm. so we have never been targeted by a serial killer. I don't think any of our doctors have ever been targeted either. I mean, knock on wood. I hope it never happens, but they make it seem in these shows like it's a frequent occurrence. It's so common. That killers <laughs> have vendettas against people that work at the coroner's office, and I have yet to come across that i've also yet to come across a serial killer case that we know of knock on wood too yeah knock on wood so back at their office harrow and a colleague get sent out to the scene from those opening credits they are told that the man was found with shark bite wounds he and the colleague arrive at port aster where their case is and are picked up by an officer as they're driving to the morgue the officer's telling them that one of the parks and conservation officers is dead and it looks like the shark attack They go into the autopsy suite and the deceased, whose name is Ben, he is laying on the table clothed. They have one of the decedent's colleagues there to ID him in the autopsy suite, like, as they're doing the external exam, and I kind of call a red flag for this. Also, their lighting in the autopsy suite is really bad, but that's beside the point. One, you wouldn't have people IDing, like, in the middle of the exam. You'd either wait until the end, or you take a picture and you show them, or, like, cover them up so it's just their face. Yeah, it would be made much more presentable than just like, all right, here they are in the middle of the autopsy suite. Because like the body's literally just out. There's nothing covering it. They're not even trying to cover up like the bitten off arm. They had the colleague in like a gown to a PPE. I mean, maybe points for PPE, but I I was like, are they going to stay for the exam? That's what I was thinking. I was like, is she just going to like observe this whole thing of them cutting up her friend? Yeah, is she dressed to stay and observe, but she ended up leaving? But I was very confused why she was there to begin with. Yeah. So definitely, like, they should have waited until at least the end when they were all done the exam for them to, like, officially ID if they didn't already have a positive ID before they started. Mm-hmm. So Harrow and his colleague are shown the scene photos. And that's a green flag because always take scene photos or 
a very good reference to refer back to when you're working on the case. Yeah, we've talked about that before. They help during not only the external exam, but the autopsy. It's like, oh, was the body found lying in this position? Okay, that makes sense with how the liver mortis is presenting or rigor mortis. Yeah. It could tell you that the body's been moved. Exactly. So then Ben's co-worker tells them that he was protective of the rare species of wildlife that they had in their oceans and would even go out off-duty to look for poachers. And then back at the main office, Harrow's assistant is kind of doing his own research, which is like subplot that we're not really going to get into. But in the morgue, he pulls out a body from their really cool mortuary wall cooler that always shows up in these shows, which I've never seen in real life. So he examines the hands of this body and he opens the eyes of the decedent without gloves. And that is a major red flag. He's just poking at this guy. (laughs) At least put one glove on for one hand if you're going to touch him. Not that, like, touching a dead body means that there's a disease, but, like, you don't know if there could be anything on them, so it's just good practice to wear a glove when you're touching a deceased body. Yeah, one, the sanitary factor, but also, if he's looking for some kind of evidence, he's just just contaminating it. Yeah. But one quick thing I wanted to say about, like, mortuary wall coolers. So my pop, my grandpa, he was a homicide detective a while ago and loved his job, and he's so excited that I work in this field. And we were talking one day and I mentioned our cooler that we have in the morgue. And I was trying to explain how we get bodies in and out of the cooler. And he was so confused. And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, well, isn't it like the drawers? Like you have the drawers in the wall. I was like, no, it's like a big room. It's like a big cooler. Like it's a free- a fridge. It's a big empty fridge that you put bodies in. Like you keep them on the table. Oh my God. And he's like, I've never seen that. I've only ever seen, like he would go see autopsies when he was a detective. He'd only ever seen the wall pull out coolers. So he was the opposite of us. He's never seen like a walk-in cooler like we have. He's only seen the mortuary wall cooler. And he was, that's all he knew. He thought that's what we had. Is that a New York thing? I don't know. I'm so curious now. I meant to bring that up earlier because I thought it was so funny that he was the opposite of us because we've never seen that and that's all he's ever seen in his career. As a, And he used to love going to autopsies. He always told me stories about how he loved going to watch the autopsies. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, he said that's all he ever saw. So back to the show, the eyes of this decedent are a cloudy gray color, and this is actually a green flag. It's called corneal clouding, and this will start to occur about two hours after death, and the eyes will become a more opaque color in a day or two. So he then goes to talk to a doctor who did this man's autopsy, and this doctor's in the middle of a case, and he's weighing organs, which we do, and he's also wearing his proper PPE, so we give a green flag for him. So enough with subplot, we're getting back to our main story here. Back at the shark case autopsy, the detective is bagging property and evidence in evidence bags, which was really cool to see because we use the exact same ones, which I'm sure are like industry standard, but green flag for them. I thought it was so cool. Plus they're in the shows in Australia, right? I was like, wow, they use the same bags in Australia. And they ask if they think blood loss due to his limbs being bit off is the cause of death. Dr. M, Harrow's colleague, says that all the wounds were potentially fatal and they don't know which one killed him until they examine the severed blood vessels. He was on a small boat in rough seas, so he could have possibly fallen off his boat and hit his head before being attacked by the shark, and... 
He'll have to look for those injuries when they open his skull, which is a green flag. We would do the exact same thing if we had ever gotten a shark case. Or if there's ever like a supposed head injury or a suspected fall, even if someone just mentions, hey, I think this person fell a day or two ago, we're going to open that. It happens all the time. Like, elderly people someone's like oh they fell they have to come in we'll do a head only exam just to rule out if there is or isn't trauma they also theorize that they could have fallen overboard and became fatigued and drowned before being attacked by the shark i know we've talked about the worst ways to die before when we were talking about and that was another harrow episode about being buried alive but oh my gosh it just seemed like they were listing terrible ways die i mean like well he could have been stuck at sea and fallen overboard and hit his head and then eaten by a shark or maybe he was trying to swim and got tired and just decided to drown and then he was eaten by a shark i'm like these are all horrible options This poor person. They were just checking off the list. Or maybe that he just got his leg bitten off by a shark and that's how he died. I was like, I can't. So needless to say, a full autopsy is the only way that they're going to get answers. They begin to examine and Dr. M is photographing the body. Another green flag. We do this all the time. We love taking our forensic photos. We're very good at our forensic photos. We've gotten so good at them. I'm very proud of us. I'm very proud of us too. And Harrow's dictating the multiple external injuries, like a puncture wound below the right clavicle. Harrow also notices jellyfish stings along the left side of the torso. He said he's seen these wounds before at sea, but never in the morgue. He says jellyfish stingers are lined with nematocysts, which are tiny cells that contain coiled venomous barbs and a trigger hair. When the trigger hair is touched, the cells explode and the barb and venom go into the prey. The decedent didn't appear to have a strong reaction to the venom, so perhaps it wasn't a strong venom, or he was already dead when he was stung. Harry notices that the decedent's inside cheeks and tongue are inflamed. Dr. M gets the endoscope, which is just like a little microscope that they can go down the esophagus to see everything inside without actually cutting him open. They use this to see inside his mouth and throat, which has sting marks. Harris says they need to remove his stomach as fast as they can. They take the stomach out to get a closer look at the gastric or stomach contents. And while it's not the worst looking stomach I've seen on these shows, it isn't great. I think it's just really hard to get the actual appearance of a stomach down. Like, it doesn't look as firm as it does in these shows. But they have the general shape of it correct. I want to know why it's so hard to get down. Maybe I like to do special effects makeup. Maybe one day I'll try to just make a prop stomach and see if I can do it. The stomach is really floppy and not almost flimsy, but it's not as firm as these shows portray it to be. How would you describe it? Like a water balloon? Yes. A stomach is basically an overfilled water balloon. But even that doesn't seem right to me. It's still, I can't. I can't think. I can't explain it. You just have to like see it to understand that these shows don't get it right. It looks like you can almost tell the fake stomach is a plastic or a rubber material, which it obviously is. And I'm sure the props team works very hard and they do a great job. I never noticed these things until I saw an actual stomach. And now I just I feel like that has to be so hard to replicate. I'm going to try it. I'll let you know (laughs) with my special effects makeup skills. Very amateur skills. Try and see if I can do it. So they pour out the stomach contents and see seawater, acid, and little jellyfish. They're like these little tiny guys. They were adorable. I didn't realize what they were looking at at first. And they're like, 
jellyfish. And I was like, where? <laughs> How I do you know this? There. I thought it was pieces of a bigger jellyfish. And then I realized that the little tiny pieces were the individual jellyfish. So they go to the aquarium that this town is like known for and they're very into. And they go with a detective to question the employees there. There is an event going on at this aquarium that they're planning for and everyone's on edge. It's a big event with a lot of investors coming and they need the investors to donate. So they question one of the aquarium workers who I think is like the aquarium owner or the manager. And then he takes her to one of the doctors that works there and asks if she, I'm assuming it's either a, PhD, a marine biologist PhD or maybe a veterinarian of some kind. And they ask if she can help identify the jellyfish and its venom at autopsy. So she takes them to her lab and she says that she knew the decedent Ben because they arrived in town around the same time. And the aquarium has a license to get fish stock from the waters which parks and wildlife manage. So they worked together sometimes. She says he was always on the water and she was shocked that, to hear that he fell overboard and died. She looks at the sample under the microscope and identifies it as Carochiae barnesi, which is a... <laughs> Jess is nodding as I'm struggling through that pronunciation. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you got it. I have no idea if I did. You go, girl. You go, girl. <laughs> You're doing great, sweetie. You're doing great. Oh, oh, just wait. I got another tricky word coming up, which is a subtype of the Irukandji jellyfish, which are apparently common in the surrounding waters. They're a hundred times more venomous than a cobra, and a small amount of venom can cause excruciating muscle cramps, headaches, vomiting, trouble breathing, and brain hemorrhage, and the effects can start between five minutes and two hours. But if the person is stung by more than one jellyfish, this could happen a lot quicker. Harrow tells the aquarium lab worker that they found seven jellyfish in Ben's digestive system. The lab worker says that these types of jellyfish don't aggregate like that and that they tend to spread out and actively hunt their own prey. So they send the blood and organs from the case back to their office at QIFM, which is the Queenland Institute of Forensic Medicine, along with stomach contents and the seawater and jellyfish. Dr. M goes on a date with the detective, Gabe, and she ends up just talking about how she has feelings for Harrow, and the detective is very sweet and understanding about it. And they talk about trying to date someone in the fields, and this doesn't really relate to the case, but Detective Gabe says something like, in this job, you have to talk. Sometimes the only people that really get it are the ones that are in it too. Which, again, this is another subplot, but I really liked this part because it really hit home. And it's something we've mentioned before. We're very big in, like, advocating for mental health, especially in this field. We're very open to, like, talking and talking through cases, talking to, like, coworkers or other people in the field. Yeah. The subplot had nothing to do with the case, but the scene was, I feel like the scene was important to show. Yeah, it was, yeah, because she was basically talking about how she has a crush on Harrow, but he's her supervisor and they can't date. And Gabe is explaining like well you kind of want someone you can talk to especially in this job since you both work this job it seems like you'd be able to understand each other and I was like oh wow like mm -hmm. that is true like and he goes on to open up about the worst case he ever worked which he says was a car crash that killed seven people four of them were kids and again that's something we've also been very vulnerable with you guys about uh, pediatric cases are always in my opinion the worst to deal with and yeah so I just really liked that scene 
with how vulnerable they were being with each other about working in this field. And I can also relate to that being like the worst kind of things I've worked. And meanwhile, Harrow is talking to this other pathologist that he's friends with over a drink. And this friend says they're having their own kind of heart to heart, but they're definitely handling it differently because this friend goes, we cut open dead people in a methodical way. Of course, we don't know how to cope with our jobs. And like, well, maybe I relate to that. I also relate to that. Sometimes it was it was a funny side by side with like these two like the one was like an older doc too yeah yeah he was an older doc who's been doing this for years and I think he was someone Harrow looked up to and he's just kind of they're getting drunk and being like I of course we don't know how to cope with this like we cut open dead people and I was like oh god which which of these people am I am I the people that are openly talking about their date or on their date like talking about their feelings or am I this person who's all cynical (laughs) and I have been judged by some people for having not only having this job but loving it and it is something that bothers me sometimes I don't know if you were working yet but I was releasing a body to a funeral home and he I think I was still new and they were like oh like I haven't seen you around and I was like oh yeah like I'm an autopsy tech like I work in the back a lot so that's why you might not see me and he goes you're too pretty to be in this field and I was like, thanks, have a great day. Uh, <laughs> I feel like he was judging me for wanting to be in this field. Ew. Right? I'm so sorry that was said to you. I have had similar things like that said to me. Sometimes I'll I'll be like, when I'm talking to people at work, unless it's like, I, I mean, obviously I read the room, but I tend to be a very happy, positive person. I try very hard to be that way. And some people, when the, like, if they're in the morgue and I'm talking to them, they're like, well, you're happy for an autopsy tech. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you want me to be in my emo goth clothes all the time? Do you want me to be miserable while I do my job? Do you want me to be rude and impolite to you? Like, I I literally said to one person one time, I was like, we work in such a hard field. Why would I try to make it harder by being, like, being unhappy? I was like, I try, I, so like, I try to be positive. Exactly. Because, like, this is a hard field. I never know who I'm going to be talking to who's having a hard day. I'm not going to make their day worse. Yeah. Be kind to people, guys. Just be kind. And, like, I, yeah, I don't know. There was one time I opened the door for someone and I was like, hi, how are you? And he was like, what are you so happy about? Oh, I remember this. Oh, my God. Yeah, I went. I was there. As, <laughs> as soon as he left, I was like, Jess, I can't win. And we were already having kind of like a rough day. And I was like really hanging on to like my last shred of positivity. And then that happened. And I was like, Jess, I'm going to start being rude to people. And you're like, no, you're not. And I was like, I guess I'm not. But I want to. That's not your personality. <laughs> you're like, you won't. And you want to, but you're not gonna. But yeah, sometimes you definitely, when people kind of break it down like that way like oh you cut open dead people and I was like well I'm trying to do right by them I'm trying to get answers for them and their loved ones I'm trying to speak for those that can't speak for themselves yeah and people automatically assume like oh you're just a gross person who likes gross things and I'm like well one gross things don't bother me but I'm using that hopefully for the greater good and I think that we cope with our jobs and like what we deal with pretty good. I think we're doing amazing, sweetie. (laughs) As Kris Jenner would say. No, I think we do. And I think a lot of it has to do with the support we find in one another and also the rest of our office. We are very lucky. Also like support system outside the office. Yes. Support system outside the office is also crucial. 
but it, it does help like they were saying in this episode having people to talk to who get it that have been there and who get it i talk to you all the time yeah i talk to you all the time too if we have a hard case one day i'm like hey that really bothered me you know you saw what i saw right no matter how much you try to explain it to somebody else unless you really see it it's hard to put into words sometimes yeah like i'll try to talk to dom about some things and he's even told me he's like i'm a great listener but I don't understand fully what you're going through, so I might not be the best person to talk to. Right. Yeah. I've had similar conversations like that with Costa. It's just like they're they're supportive and they love us and they want to be there for us to vent and talk about it. But there's only so much that they can empathize mm-hmm. with just because of their own experiences and our experiences are very different. Not that that's a fault of theirs. It's just it's hard to know what someone's going through unless you've been through it yourself. All right. We'll get off the mental health soapbox. But that was our little little tangent why we left that little bit of subplot in our recording because we wanted to talk about that. But I thought they they got that pretty well done in that episode. So anyway, while Harrow is talking to this cynical colleague, he has an epiphany about Ben's case. So he goes into the morgue the next morning to look at the body again and his colleague, Dr. M, she also arrives and Hera shows her the endoscope image of the esophagus again. And he points out the inflammation, meaning, again, talking about worst ways to die, that this poor man was alive when he swallowed these highly venomous jellyfish. Oh, that sounds awful. I might have to add this to, to my list. Worst ways to die. It was something I'd never even considered. Now I'm going to be worried about drinking jellyfish. We live in the city, in the suburbs. <laughs> you never know. There are aquariums, <laughs> Jess. So the inflammatory response or inflammation occurs when tissues are injured by either bacteria, some kind of trauma, toxin, etc. So damaged cells will release chemicals including histamine, bradykinin, and prostaglandins. And these chemicals cause your blood vessels to leak fluid into the tissues, which will cause the swelling or the inflammation that you see. So that's what he is seeing in the throat. And of course, you have to be alive and have blood flowing for all of this to occur, which is how they were able to tell he was alive when he swallowed the jellyfish because there's inflammation in his throat and tongue, but he was dead when they stung him on his side because there wasn't any inflammation on those stings. Harrow calls the office to see if they got the lab report back for the case yet. The chemical contents of the stomach contents contain potassium chloride, hydrochloric acid, which is just stomach acid, sodium chloride, salt, and traces of methanonium fluoride, which is methylene blue which is used to treat a condition called methemoglobinemia, which is a rare blood disorder that affects how red blood cells deliver oxygen throughout the body. And nearly all people with this condition have skin, nails, or lips that have a very distinctive shade of blue, which is very interesting to see. I've never seen it in real life. I've only seen it in pictures for class. But as soon as they said it, I could like see the pictures from class. I was picturing it, yeah. So methylene blue is also used as an antifungal agent by people who keep tropical fish, which is something I didn't know. I didn't know that either. I didn't know that. So the fish that killed Ben didn't come from the sea. It came from a tank, possibly an aquarium. Dun, dun, dun. dun. Of course, of course, it was this big aquarium that everybody's freaking out about. So they go to speak to the aquarium lab worker to interrogate her. Red flag once again, because they're just two pathologists going to interrogate the suspect, which isn't part of a pathologist's job. Like, they have a detective that was working with them. Where is he? I also feel like any of what 
the lab worker was telling them would never hold up in court. Right? Like, why? I mean, I get why. It's TV. They're the main characters. They have to be in every scene. They're the main characters. They have to do every job. And they have 45 minutes plus commercials to do all this stuff. So, (laughs) yeah, they just give all the jobs to one person. But in real life, you're not going to be interrogated by a pathologist. You're going to be interrogated by a detective. So this lab worker admits to having an affair with Ben, but she says she hasn't used methylene blue to treat her tank for more than a year. She uses something called cymazine now. She says she does know who still uses methylene blue, though. So they go to question the man who runs the aquarium, who won't tell them anything unless they have a warrant. He is very preoccupied with this stupid gala event that they have going on and he doesn't want their investigation to ruin it. Hera goes to talk to the detective about getting a warrant, and he says that because Ben worked for Parks and Conservation, he supervised how many endangered fish the aquarium could have. So Ben thought that poachers were taking the endangered fish, but maybe it was the aquarium manager. The detective says he'll get the ball rolling on a warrant, but they might not be able to get it until the next day. But by that time, the tank might be emptied. The detective apologizes for not being able to do more, but he has to deal with two guests that were supposed to attend the gala event that have now come down with food poisoning. Also, why is that the detective's job to deal with the two people with food poisoning? That feels like not his job at all. They were in the hospital and he's like, I'm sorry, I got to go deal with these people. I'm like, you're a detective. Sir, that's not in your wheelhouse of responsibilities. He also, he has every other job that's like off screen. But his real job. So Harrow and Dr. M are the investigators. They're the pathologists. They're the cops. And then the detective is also a doctor and they all wear many hats. That isn't realistic. Harrow and Dr. M decide to get dressed up and attend the gala event at the aquarium, pretending to be the two people that had been food poisoned. They won't be able to make the event now. Harrow is going to try to get a water sample, which would be inadmissible, but he just says he wants to know for himself. So by definition, inadmissible evidence is evidence that may not be introduced to a fact finder, usually a judge or a jury, to prove a party's claim. This includes hearsay, prejudicial, improperly obtained, or irrelevant items. So because they don't have a warrant yet, if they get this water sample, it would be, quote, improperly obtained evidence. So it wouldn't hold up in court. But they're still going to try anyway, because it's a TV show, and they just want to know. They need to go above the jellyfish tanks in order to get a sample, so Harrow sneaks upstairs to where the jellyfish are kept to try to get this sample. He sees luggage upstairs and opens it and sees that they contain rare fish. Just then, he is grabbed from behind and confronted by two people that work for the Parks and Conservation Department. They were the villains all along. The whole entire department. Not the whole department. No, the environment is great, guys. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm going to get canceled now. (laughs) Parks and Rec is going to cancel me. So one of these people was Ben's coworker, the one who was at the autopsy and ID'd him. Her name is Janelle. Harrow realizes that Ben must have figured out that Parks and Conservation was letting the aquarium manager overfish his aquarium license so that they could sell the fish to foreign collectors. Ben found the stash of fish, and then Janelle forced him to drink the jellyfish water. What a way. I feel like there could have been better ways to like go about this whole thing. I don't know. Janelle then threatens to shoot Harrow, like, at this gala. I mean, they're kind of secluded from other people, but they're still, like, at this gala event. And I, no one's going to hear a gunshot? I don't know. 
So she threatens to shoot Harrow, but the other worker and him get into a scuffle and they fall into one of the shark tanks. It's like so dramatic. And as they're wrestling in the shark tank, Dr. M is inside the gala and sees them in the tank scuffling. And she comes to help and tackles Janelle with the gun. As Janelle was just shooting straight into the tank. She was going to hit someone. I'm amazed she didn't hit anything. Not even an animal. None of the sharks or anything were shot either. She didn't care about her other co-worker. She's worse than a stormtrooper. Like stormtroopers are known for not being able to hit their target. She couldn't hit anything. She literally couldn't hit fish in a barrel. (laughs) So yeah, everybody was safe. Dr. M tackles Janelle to the ground and her and her colleague get arrested and Hera goes back to the morgue and closes the case, even though he should have just waited for the freaking warrant. Should have just waited to get the warrant and not have tried to get shot. I think the detective shows up and fight. And not only that, oh my gosh, I totally forgot this detail. He was wearing somehow the detective's tux. He was. Detective shows up and is like, guys, you could have messed up everything. You should have just waited for the warrant. And then he looks at him and he's like, and you're wearing my tux and just jumped in a saltwater tank with it this poor man can't win this week's episode got us thinking like they all do what would it be like to examine remains that had been attacked by a shark so we found the case of a young man's death that was ruled to be a shark attack three thousand years after it happened Today, he's known as Skukumo number 24, and he is one of over 170 skeletons that were excavated from a site in Japan. A paper published by the Journal of Archaeological Sciences gave more insight to this young man's tragic death. The burial site where these 170 were found is a shell mound cemetery of the Jomon people in early Japan that was accidentally discovered during a construction project in 1860. The calcium carbonate in the shells helps protect the skeletons from the relatively acidic soil in Japan, said lead author J. Alyssa White, DPhil candidate in archaeology at the University of Oxford. The man was excavated first in 1970 and has been excavated many times for additional examination. His bones had massive gouges, pits, and slashes that weren't interpreted until White and her team took a look at them. The fact that this death was violent seemed very apparent. Ancient tools of the time they thought this young man died didn't match what remained of his skeleton, which led researchers to rule out human-on-human violence. Outside of Black Bears and Wolves, the co-author wrote, Japan isn't home to large carnivorous predators, therefore making an animal attack a less obvious conclusion. The researchers were aware that the Jomon people heavily relied on marine resources, so they started considering ocean predators. That, according to Rick Schulting, professor of scientific and prehistoric archaeology at the University of Oxford, is what led them to George Burgess, director of the Florida Program for Shark Research and curator of the International Shark Attack File. Burgess confirmed it. This was the work of at least one shark, if not more. And that makes this case the oldest shark attack on record by 2,000 years. The wounds found on the man's skeleton include 790 traumatic lesions from shark teeth in the form of deep cuts, fractured ribs, bite marks, and puncture wounds that remained on the skeleton. 790. He had to have been dead well before that, and these sharks were just going to town. 790. I'm just imagining having to document every single one of those, like, injuries. That's so much to document in the report. Like, that report's probably 
a hundred pages. Because I'm just thinking if we ever get a case with multiple wounds or like multiple gunshot wounds or multiple things. I don't think we've ever had an animal attack. We've never had an animal attack, but I'm just thinking how tedious it is to document multiple wounds, like in a car accident or in a gunshot wounds. Like you have to be very thorough and like it's just, you have to be very thorough with how you document and photograph and measure all of the injuries. And I'm just thinking I've never had had to measure or record anywhere near 700 it's almost 800 that's 800 injuries that is so 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 much that these people that these researchers had to document so to better understand the lesions and the trauma on the body the research team used 3d imaging ct scans and gis geographic information system software is typically used to help visualize data related to landscapes and cities and this technology allowed the research team to recreate trauma to the bones on 3d images of the human body in this case white added the hundreds of shark tooth injuries on specific parts of each bone allowing them to see the injuries this man had quote to the best of our knowledge this is the first time that gis has been used to map the human body in 3d the distribution of the trauma on the skeleton presented challenges for traditional 2D methods of recording, not least how to represent the damage to the inside of the rib cage. Working with a 3D model of the skeleton allowed us to document all of the trauma. It also allowed us to understand the impact the skeletal trauma would have had on other parts of the human body. The visualization of the blood vessels that would have been severed by the trauma on the lower left leg highlights this impact in a visceral way. End quote. George Burgess believes that severed blood vessels and an amputated leg may have contributed to a quick death for this young man. Thank God. That would have been excruciating to go through if not. Honestly. 790 at least. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I can only hope this poor person had a quick death. Jesus. He went on to explain that when a human being dies as a result of a shark bite, it's usually a sanguination, which is a loss of blood that causes their death. He says... All it takes is one tooth to hit an artery. Yet, for all the bite marks sustained on this young man's skeleton, it was surprisingly intact. The rest of the injuries, therefore, might have occurred after death when the sharks may have scavenged for his corpse. But the authors are quick to point out that shark attacks are relatively rare. Despite terrifying examples like this one, sharks generally aren't a danger to humans. Burgess has spent most of his career studying sharks and shark attacks and says that an average number of shark attacks per year worldwide is about 75. Of those 75 attacks, only six are fatal. He encourages people to consider the potential billions of hours globally people spend in the water in comparison to those numbers, saying that on the list of causes of human death, shark attack would be down at the bottom of the page. We got all of this information from a Gizmodo article by Janine Timmons, and we'll link that article and this research paper in our show notes for anyone who wants to learn more. That is so crazy. I love that they used so much new technology to recreate. Right? The 3D imaging? Yeah, and the the GIS. And I just thought that was so interesting that they were able to do that. And again, just how long it must have taken not only to document all the wounds on the skeleton, but to recreate them for 3D imaging. There was a lot of work that went into this case to determine that a shark attack did this. Also, the paper that we read and like got all this information from had images like photos showing what they were doing and we'll we'll post those on our instagram and like link it there too but that was really cool to see like a visual of what exactly they were Mm -hmm. describing in their article 
Yeah, it was. It's a fascinating read. I highly recommend when we link it in our show notes. Read it for yourselves. It's some really cool science and really cool technology that was used. Really cool forensic technology. I was just going to say, this is what we always talk about because we've had people say to us before, oh, I wish I could work in forensics, but I don't think I could do what you do. There are so many other jobs in forensics and so many other ways to get involved right? in forensics. And it's an evolving field. Digital forensics. There's uh, anthropology. There's so much out there. I feel like people constantly think it's this one small subset of oh crime scene investigation autopsy which are very important jobs and like you know we love both of those jobs we're only one half of that but there's so many other jobs in this field and other specializations definitely look into it more if forensics is something that you want to get into but you don't know if you want to do autopsies or a crime scene investigation there's so many other cool things out there there's something for everyone there really is Yeah, I also liked the little tidbit at the end about how rare shark attacks are. I have a a stupid fear of being in the ocean and thinking a shark's going to come after me because I watched Jaws too many times. I was just going (laughs) to say, my parents, my mom and my dad, they both love the movie Jaws. We watch it every summer. It's like a family movie we all love. But my mom loves sharks. Like, they're one of her favorite animals. And after the movie Jaws came out, she always says this, like, people started attacking great white sharks because they were so afraid of them, even though the sharks weren't doing anything. They're just living in the ocean like they do. But they had to, like, come out with a statement being like, hey, guys, like, shark attacks are actually super rare. Please don't kill the wildlife just because you think they're good. <laughs> just because you're scared of them. I know. And so I love that they added that at the end of this research paper just to be like hey guys like yeah this is probably a shark attack but just remember that they're super rare and sharks are probably gonna leave you alone <laughs> just don't <laughs> freak out about them i'm more afraid of octopuses Ooh, they're like sneaky they like hang out in like the dark depths i wish you guys could see what i'm doing right now <laughs> i'm doing, like, like little creepy arms i'm doing little creepy arms trying to pretend to be an octopus they hang out in like the pitch black dark ocean i'm i know very little about octopuses maybe they don't and they're so smart i they're too smart and they i just always picture their giant tentacly legs i wish i so wish you all could see me on video right now and they just they just wrap their tentacles around you or whatever they're trying to attack and they suck it into the dark depths of the ocean i'm more afraid of them still don't kill octopuses though don't kill them either i'm not saying that i'm afraid of squids squids giant squids have you ever seen a giant squid i don't want to they are massive they have like teeth mm, no <laughs> and it's just like pincers and like ding, ding, ding. <laughs> what's really funny is when i was little i had a toy octopus that was like my favorite thing and I can't, I still am so afraid. I like your little pee I wish you all could see the video. <laughs> we don't record our video, just our audio. We're video chatting right now, doing weird little faces, pretending that I'm like waving my arms around and just as like, <laughs> She's like one of those blow up things at a car show. I'm a wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. You're doing like the little beak that they have. <laughs> yeah, the beak. They're doing, That's like, what it's called. In front of her face. They have the beak and it freaks me out. Oh my god, this podcast has somehow just turned into a tangent of things we're afraid of. <laughs> Worst ways to die. Part two. Worst way to die being sucked into the dark depths of an ocean with tentacles of a giant squid with a giant beak and teeth. <laughs> it's the worst way. As a field of sharks come toward you. And as you're down there, he makes you drink jellyfish. And that's how you drown. 
Well, anyway, sweet dreams, everybody. Or have a lovely day at work. <laughs> or, yeah, I don't know when you're listening to us. We're recording at night, so I'm just assuming everybody's going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> to end this episode, we tallied a total of six green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Harrow does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week with a brand new section. 